Welcome back to Cthulhu Light Show, your one-stop shop for news you've already heard and opinions you don't need. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Orson Welles' venerable radio classic, The War of the Worlds. My name is Dakota. My name is Brian. And it's and spooky, holy crap, spooky fucking October month still. Yeah, spook, spooky tober, spooktober, spook- which is definitely already being spook- used by somebody else. Actually, I use that uh, for a. I use that for a, a YouTube channel at one point. Oh my god! Back when I was doing let's plays. Oh no. Yeah, it's just as cringy as you imagine. Cringe. Oh, I think I use Spooky Game Tober, which sounds even lamer. Yeah. I'm not good at branding here. Well, yeah, our podcast is called Cthulhu Light Show. What search algorithm is that for? Ah, shit, yeah. I should have taken one of those online SEO classes. Yeah, man. Really, really, really train myself how to manipulate Google. To get more people to listen to our shitty pod. Alright, we've gone way off the rails already. Today we're talking about Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. That uh, 1938 radio classic that uh, apparently shocked a bunch of people into thinking aliens were actually invading. That is a myth. That did not actually happen. But but Wikipedia said... There were like a couple isolated incidents, but the vast majority of the population was aware that it was a radio play. Well, that's not fun. Why are we doing the episode then? Because it's a good, uh, good play. <laughs> it's actually a very good play. Yeah. And I, 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 I have a soft spot for old radio. I, I hung up my grandparents a lot, and they listened to AM radio, so I got really into AM radio. Uh, there was a hot minute in time where I wanted to be like a radio personality. You can all tell how that turned out. So now here we are podcasting. Yeah. Exactly. This is a slightly unconventional choice for, like, an October Halloween bonanza. Or at least it might seem that way. But, A, this absolutely is horror. Yes, it's science fiction, but I would describe it as science fiction horror. And... Like Jason X. What's that? <laughs> like like Jason X. Sure. The one where, or Friday, Friday the 13th, but Jason's in the future. Okay. But yeah, so, um, A, I think this is absolutely horror, um, and B, in the recording, Orson Welles himself talks about Halloween. Like, I think this was originally a Halloween broadcast. Yeah, it was originally broadcast on October 30th, so it would be the day before Halloween. Right, so there's a precedent for this being, like, a Halloween-themed story, It is very much executed like a horror story. I find it very unsettling to listen to. Um, And because Dakota and I are A, both huge fans of old shit, B, big fans of classic alien stories, and C, uh, both big fans of aliens being objects of horror, this just seemed like a really good fit for, for the show, so... Yeah, you guys want some of that, you know, we gotta live up to that Cthulhu light show name. You guys want the fancy monsters, you guys want the big lights and the heat guns and shit. Here you go, man. Yeah, and uh, I think this this uh, story is vaguely Lovecraftian in some ways. It's in the, it's in the very outskirts of what you could call, like, uh, Eldritch, which yeah. Brian and I had a heated debate about this. Actually, it's pronounced Eldritch. You guys, 
I corrected myself now. You can rest easy. Yeah, I mean, like, for instance, there's this whole thing of, like, we barely get a descriptor of what the Martians look like inside of their little tripod machines, but the uh, reporter who's describing them initially literally describes them as, I think, indescribable or something along those lines. There's the sense that you don't really know what they want or why they're here, although the opening narration kind of gives you some hints towards that. And even the tripods themselves are just very, like, strange. So I I consider this a semi-Lovecraftian piece. Um, Now, I had listened to this once before for a class in college, actually. Dakota, have you ever listened to this? Honestly, no. This has been my first time actually listening um, I, I've of course heard of like the different you know parodies and stuff that other shows and movies have done, but oh, I've yeah. never gotten down to the actual thing itself. Yeah, I think a lot of the appeal of the, this story is lost outside of its original format too. Like I think that this, I think Wells wrote this as a book later, or maybe it started out as a book. I don't remember which, but like. It started as a book by H.G. Wells in the late 1800s. Gotcha. I thought I had. Oh no, I don't have the. Uh, I don't have the book, Wikipedia article up anymore. But it was late 1800s. H.G. Wells wrote it. Gotcha. Okay, that makes. It's sense. like the first. It's the first alien invasion story. It's, it's this is where all the rest of your shit comes from. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, like alien invasion stories at the time were just a twist on an existing kind of genre of literature which was invasion literature which was kind of a brand of like cultural horror um it was very popular in england for instance like the idea of the british empire you know the most like supreme power on all the planet being invaded and occupied and being treated like they treated their subjects was a rampant and controversial topic in in a lot of literature around that time period. Uh, actually, for a quick shout out, uh, Lindsay Ellis has a great video on YouTube comparing, I think it's Independence Day with the Steven Spielberg adaptation of War of the Worlds. And uh, she touches on it there that like this is an exploration of kind of colonialist horror. The idea of like, what if the colonizers could be colonized, you know? But we don't need to get into a big in-depth discussion about that. So, uh, Dakota, this is your first time listening to it. Just tell me what you thought. Going into it, of course, there's always the hype of like, oh, you know, this, this is the big thing. This is what really kicked radio off into being, like, the cultural phenomenon that it was. And also, like, horror and other stuff. I really liked it actually it was, I like I said I have a real soft spot for like old timey radio mm-hmm. and stuff like uh, like the, like the, the Twilight Zone radio show there's also um, Suspense and X-1 different like weekly anthology stuff like which what uh, like what the War of the Worlds comes from it's part of uh, the Mercury Theater on the Air which you know before TV radio was the big like gather around and listen to the stories machine. Mm-hmm. So, going into it with that, making it, giving it the pass, of course, that it's the first, uh, it's the first alien story, really. It's the first alien invasion story, so there are no tropes to play off of, you know, any tropes that might exist come from this. 
Uh, so putting your biases aside of like 80 years of science fiction, give or take, uh, this was fantastic radio. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. For me, it wasn't quite as impactful the second time, just because I knew all the basic story beats, you know, even more than I already did from, like, kind of cultural osmosis. I feel like, at the very least, the uh, ending of this is fairly well-known and infamous. Um, but a lot of this was completely new to me when I heard it for the first time. And the first time I heard it, it fucking wowed me. I was really, really impressed. I think... You and I are in agreement, we discussed this a little bit already, that the first two-thirds or so of the play are the best part, and it kind of starts to drop off towards the end. A little bit. And that's to be expected if you listen to the rumor and innuendo and speculation surrounding this uh, this, uh, audio endeavor, whatever, I'm trying to think of fancy words to say, the radio broadcast. About the 40-minute mark, when they take a break, that's them trying to get, if you listen to the hype, like the cops and the media under control, as, of course, they're trying to break in to stop the broadcast, because it's causing widespread pandemonium. Yeah, I don't think any of that's actually true. Yeah, and if it is, it's there's, like, one thing, there's this concrete Washington that, like, as this broadcast was going, the, the power went out in the entire town, so, like... Yeah, that's probably the biggest story to come out of, like, the War of Worlds. I don't think anybody died. There was no crazy riots in the streets. What I was getting at, I got, again, I got way off topic. There's a lot to discuss with this. The first, like, two-thirds before they cut off for a commercial, very, very compelling radio. They played with the medium incredibly well. It's, uh, you know, the standard, like, you know, dance music. Cut in, you know, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you special uh, special news bulletin from you know, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts in, and it cuts in and out. It really plays with uh, the conventions of what was conventional radio at the time. Yeah, well, this is something I wanted to bring up, is that here we have, like, an intersection with something we talked about in our Creepypasta way back when, our Creepypasta episode, uh, which was that, you know, I talked about how creepypasta and a lot of early horror was really focused on this idea of verisimilitude which is like trying to ground the story you're telling in reality as much as possible making it as believable and lifelike as possible to enhance the degree of the horror um this is why old horror stories used to claim that like oh i heard this from a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy you know because like oh my god he knew a guy like it's real you know um with war of the worlds they i think the 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 whole verisimilitude is 90 percent of the appeal to me because they put so much effort into making this feel like a real series of radio broadcasts there's so many little touches um one of my personal favorites is when he gets to the farm at the beginning after the after the meteorite crashes he's interviewing the farmer who owns the farm and he has to keep asking the farmer to, to step closer and speak into the mic and the actor who's playing the farmer is like doing his damnedest to act like a guy who doesn't know how to be on radio I feel like there's a few other moments like that I'm trying to think of off the top of my head. Um, uh, there's a couple where, like, 
whoever's broadcasting, uh, the, the feed cuts or something, mm-hmm. like right in the middle of the sentence, and it's just dead air, which at the time was like unheard of in radio. Mm-hmm. Like dead air was a death sentence for your show. Yeah. Well, and, uh, oh, I remembered another one. There's a moment where that same reporter has to take a break, and when the show comes back, he goes, am I on? Am I on? Can you hear me? And it's like, I, I love stuff like that because it really does, like, it doesn't feel like a staged play. Um, it feels like you're listening to it. It's like early found footage, honestly. Like, it feels like you are listening to real events unfolding. Um, and I think part of the reason the last third suffers is we kind of shift from this beautiful device of, like, strung together radio broadcasts. And you shift from that to, like, normal, sta- like, radio play, you know? Which, to me, is a lot less gripping and a lot less creepy. Part of the reason I say, like, the whole verisimilitude thing uh, really enhances this is because when you have that degree of realism in how the people are behaving, I think it is that much more frightening when the transmission just cuts. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, that's that's what makes that's what makes it feel real. Yes. Yeah. Like we said, it's 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 the dead air in between like in between the segments. It's 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 like you said, like the folks I'm back, am I on? Yeah. Folks we're back here at the scene, blah blah blah. It's that it's that. It's those little yeah. peaks of humanity through what's supposed to be the veneer of like the, the old timey radio newsman. Yeah. Yeah. Really nails it for me. And then, like Brian said, it flips into, like, uh, another episode of um, uh, one of those uh, old radio shows I referenced earlier. Like, the Campbell, the Campbell Soup Radio Hour. That's a real thing. That's what happened to Mercury Theater on the air. They got sponsored by Campbell Soup, and it became, like, the Campbell's Radio Hour or some shit. Nice. But yeah, um, I mean, like, there's a great moment where planes are, like, dive-bombing the tripods, and you hear the planes going down, and then it just cuts. That's very effective. There's a moment when the initial reporter is talking about the police officers being set on fire, and then as he is talking mid-sentence, it cuts out. And again, they leave this to your imagination. Now, I believe later on they do say that his burnt body, the reporter's burnt body, was located, which I don't know if they necessarily needed. I kind of like the idea of just, like, losing contact. You know, you don't know if he got burned alive or if he was just lost in the chaos, but either way, it's freaky, you know? Yeah. That's a massive part of what I enjoy about this, uh, this play. Yeah, really. Like, like I said before, it's all about how it plays with the medium. It plays on expectations of the time. Right. There's some, you know, some weird, like, scientific inaccuracies that are pretty obviously silly to us. Like, they see the explosions happening on Mars, which presumably are, like, rockets taking off. Um, and then, like, the same day, the uh, the spacecraft arrive, which, like... Okay, it's science fiction. They can travel from Mars to Earth in a day. But light doesn't travel from Mars to Earth that fast. So, like, never should have seen it on the telescope in time. You know, like, there's little gaps in the science part of the science fiction. Um, but yeah, and, like... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and just going back to the... Um, to tie it back into the first announcer guy that got burnt to a crisp. Yeah. From, like, 
you know, the aliens are emerging to, like, you know, the Columbia Broadcasting has announced that, you know, whoever the guy's name was, this body's been recovered or whatever. That, that, that span is, like, four and a half minutes. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's another area where the kind of, like, device that the whole thing revolves around, I think, breaks down a little bit. Because, like, it starts off seemingly in, like, not real time, but in, like, a, in a relatively short period of time. But then the jumps start seeming to, like, jumps keep happening, but the amount of time that passes between each one is less and less clear. Yeah. When the military takes over the broadcast, that's kind of an interesting way to, like, keep using the format and keep it sort of fresh. I like that the tripods are not completely indestructible. Like, it's implied humanity does take a few of them out. In fact, I I think they straight up say the one that gets dive-bombed by the plane is destroyed. It's just like... So it's not like they're, like, gods compared to us, but there is, like, a significant technological uh, advantage on their side. Yeah, exactly. That last third... It's not great. It's uh I yeah, I I wouldn't go that far with it. It's still it's still good compelling radio, but just compared to like we said the first two thirds that we keep gushing over, that's it, it, it's a bit of a lackluster ending. I'm not the biggest fan of it. I think for one thing, more than the average radio play can usually be, the first two thirds are like almost purely showing and not telling. Like Yes, you are being told information, but, like, feelings are being conveyed through the way information is being presented to you. Like, I'm not scared by the information that they're spitting at me. The thing that I find frightening is the way, like, the sound effects in the background or the way the play will cut in places, the way um, people's deaths will be signaled, the... You know, the way the actors are performing, you know. This last third is a little more monotone, I think. It's a little more monotone on the part of the actor, who I think might be Orson Welles. And Yeah, uh, Professor... Professor uh, whatever the fuck. Yeah. But yeah, um, I find that part a little more monotone. Now that the dust has settled, because, like, so much of what's appealing about this show for me is just this, like, mounting horror, the, like, the revelation of this mounting horror. Um, once it's in the daylight and you get a good look at it, it's a lot less frightening to me. So having the diaries of a guy who survived the initial impact um, is not as interesting to me. The the conversation he has with the artillery man slash the what the fuck is he called in the credits? Uh, <laughs> uh, Wikipedia lists him as fascist stranger. Yeah, I mean that's not unfair. Yeah, that part's just kind of like just doesn't really make like the man's logic doesn't really fucking make sense to me. <laughs> like what he's saying, like yeah. hey man, we'll live underground, this... we'll read, you know, science books and we'll we'll steal shit from museums and we'll become the Martians, like Yeah, like the the, the uh, Sorry. <clears throat> Fascist Stranger's whole plan is uh 
we're going to hide underground, we're going to read books, we're going to learn how these tripods work, and then we're going to shoot them at the aliens. And also the humans. We'll take control, man. Come on, you and me, buddy, let's do this. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I should I should clarify, too, when I'm, like, critiquing this crazy nutjobs plan. Um, I don't think his plan is totally supposed to make sense. I think he's supposed to sound like kind of a nutjob. Like, particularly when he says, we'll get books, we'll get books, we'll get uh, science books. Like, that sounds like a very unintelligent, unscientific person. Like, the fact that he thinks it's so simple to just throw a bunch of smart guys in a room with, like, science textbooks, and suddenly we'll have heat rays, you know? Um, I don't think you're meant to take him super seriously, but I th- I feel like this is a bit of commentary that was probably a lot more relevant in the original novel, which was specifically a critique of, like, imperialism. I have a feeling this this was a much more thematically important scene there than here, where so much of the substance of this is just unveiling the horror, and then we've got this random critique of a rambling fascist, which, like, I'm all for critiquing rambling fascists. That's just, like... <laughs> it doesn't feel very relevant to the way the story is being presented to me. I, I guess partly, too, it's just very anticlimactic, because he hears this guy ramble, and he starts to... It's funny, because the, the, the fascist guy goes, like, hey, where are you going? And he's basically just, like, away from you. And, like... <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much... That's the whole at the end of the conversation. <laughs> That, that's what the entire exchange, like, results in. It's just like, get the fuck away from me. And it's like, <laughs> it's not like that ever ties back in or is relevant again, because the story ends, like, immediately after that. Um, yeah, like, uh, Professor uh, Pearson, that's his name. That's Professor it, Pearson, yeah. yeah, like, he ends up, he gets, he gets all the way from uh, Gorbersville, New Jersey, out to New York. Mm-hmm. And he finds, oh, wait, they're all dead mm-hmm. because uh, diseases got him. Yes. I want to say, I can't remember if they say it in the radio play, but I want to say in the book it's the common cold, specifically. Uh, according to Wikipedia, um, it does say, first of all, get your phone, Dakota. Second of all, it does say that, like in the book, the story ends with Pearson figuring out that They've died from, not coronavirus, that's too on the nose. Um, I don't know, like, diphtheria or something. What are those What are those diseases we conquered already? Well, it's just basically, the idea is just the Martians did not have an immunity to Earth bacteria or viruses. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Which is kind of like a happy, like, okay, I shouldn't bog this down with, like, this kind of nobody cares about this shit but like it's kind of a weird inversion of like how colonialism unfolded historically where like you know infamously when europeans came overseas to the americas they brought a fuckload of diseases with them that the native population had no defense against and while i'm sure probably europeans died from diseases that they found in the new world they still came out on top, so we don't really hear about that. So it's kind of an interesting inversion of that, where it's like, okay, but if we, if we were the ones getting colonized, then our diseases would actually save us from them, and we wouldn't get any weird Martian diseases. 
you know, like, I don't know. It's like wishful colonial thinking, I guess. I I, I realize it. I, uh, yeah. No, that, that, that really is kind of the best way to describe it. I, I, I understand what you're getting at, Brian. But yeah, a lot of people hate this ending. I kind of hate it, personally. It's lame. It's, I mean, to actually, to tie it back into the last episode. Oh, word. Not last episode, the one before. Oh, my word. bad. Uh, this kind of reminds you of the end of M.I. Shyamalan's Signs, where it figures out that, spoilers for this 20-year-old movie, the oh, aliens yeah. are allergic to water or some shit. And, yes, yes. And that fucking, they start just fucking wiping out with water. Like, yeah. it's... They invade which, course, a planet like, that's, like, 70% water or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, let, let, let's let's invade the planet that's 70% death juice, guys. Hell Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure Shyamalan pulled that from from this War of the Worlds thing. Probably, actually, that's what happens when you become so obsessed with twists that you stop caring if they make sense. Boo. Anyway, um, yeah, a lot of people take issue with the kind of logic of the ending, where they're like, "Oh my God, these like." these people or this race that can get from Mar- to like from Mars to Earth in a day and who have death ray or like heat rays and they have these crazy tripods and stuff these guys didn't think to somehow protect themselves from like local microbes and like and like yeah it's weird that is a very the, the valid Martians, criticism it is yeah like like these super advanced Martians they they they've conquered space travel mm-hmm. and they're looking towards the stars <laughs> But nobody sat down and thought in like the Martian war room. Hey guys, I want to put on like a like a suit, like a space suit or something, because mm-hmm. they could have like death juice on that planet. Right. Um, I don't. I, although I do think the logic of this ending is bad. That's not really the issue I have with it. The issue I have with it is just kind of like it's just so out of left field. You know, it just doesn't follow the logic of the story. And I think when you don't follow the logic of the story, it just winds up feeling unsatisfying. It's It would have been one thing if microbial life forms were built up in a particular way at the beginning of the play or throughout the play, but that's not the case. And I wanted to talk about this specifically because, you know, I mentioned that this play is vaguely Lovecraftian to me in certain ways. Uh, this is the way it's the least Lovecraftian to me. Because, like, one of the things that made Lovecraft's work almost kind of unique was he really hated this trend that existed all through Gothic literature of insisting upon happy endings even when the logic of the story should not allow for a happy ending. And the ending of this story is basically like, Everything should be completely fucked, and it seemed like it was. But don't worry, God is looking out for you, homie. They even specifically say that, like, God and his infinite wisdom put these microbes on this earth. So, like... Thanks, God. Yeah, thanks, G. Thanks, capital G. (laughs) Big G out here ruining first contact. But yeah, so, like... Like, that was a big trend in, in gothic horror, was that, like... God kept good people safe, and sometimes it was obvious and in your face, like the hand of God coming down to save the day. Um, Other times it was just like people who followed good Christian values survived. Um, But this story very much 
like that was something Lovecraft abhorred, and I'm bringing up Lovecraft so much because we're probably going to talk about him next week. But like this ending is that it is God was looking out for us, and I find it particularly unsatisfying not just because it comes out of fucking nowhere, but because everything supposedly goes right back to normal. Like Professor Fucker, um, <laughs> at the end says. Pearson. At the end, at, he says he's sitting in his office at the university again. And I'm like, you're fucking what? Society has been yeah, ground down to its barest foundations and you have a university job? Well, yeah, because all the, all the aliens died of, like, uh, whatever particle makes you sneeze when you look at the sun. Oh. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 a very in the literal sense Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. Uh, kind of ending. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, just you know, following that trend of like, we just don't want to upset people too much. So you know, we are going to have this incredibly grim story about humanity being brought to its knees. But like, don't worry, fellow citizens, because the germ will save us out of nowhere. Because God, <laughs> because God loves you, Billy. Like, that's the ending. But that's my main critique. I think the last third drags because I think the the device they used to tell the story, I think switching to Dr. Fuckety's memoirs or diary is just not as interesting. And I, I find the, uh, the ultimate conclusion kind of, like, incongruous with the, the everything that came before it. So... But I do think the two thir- the first two thirds are pretty phenomenal. Um, I think everybody should give this a shot. Oh, definitely. No, no, no of course. By all means, search this out. Uh, you can find it's on YouTube. Brian sent me a link, actually, to uh, a 20, 2011 remaster of the yeah. of the original. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't even think kinescope was around at that time. It's like plastic discs. It's um. It's a little shy of an hour long. It goes by pretty fast, um, especially if you're new to it. Was there anything else that stood out to you as being particularly good or bad? Not a whole lot. You, you can tell that these are professional, like, radio men. Mm-hmm. Because, like, close to the beginning, like, how five, six minutes in, someone flubs a line and just, like, without even missing a beat, corrects and moves on. And and ironically, that also kind of adds to the the, the reality, like for lack of a better term, of the of the broadcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the bread and butter of this entire thing. Um, and although that stuff about people thinking it was a real broadcast is largely a myth, um, I think part of the reason that myth caught on is because I could believe it. You know, like. If not for the framing device, where Orson Welles assures you that it is just a show, you really could believe that it was true. It's just that well done. Although, also, the time skips should make it painfully clear that it's not real. Because, like, yeah, you know, time's like not I progressing said, normally. They, from, that, from that broadcaster's death to his, like, identifying the body it's like four minutes and it's all real time of course because it's you know it's supposed to be a radio broadcast yeah well yeah and they say like he's been identified at the hospital so like 
bodies have been moved, dental records have been checked, you know, like, yeah, time is crunched. They brought his family in. Yeah. Um, another moment that really stands out to me is when the, that reporter is first on the scene with the meteorite, and, uh, you can just hear, like, the wind, like, groaning in the background, and then later he holds the microphone up to the thing, and you can hear this kind of, like, pulsing and scraping sound coming from inside of the the cylinder. I think that's really great. Um, God, old-timey radio effects are fucking awesome. They are. If you guys, like, after you watch this, you guys need to find, like, like recreations of, like, old, old-timey old radio sound effects. Because it's, it's all, like, gongs and sheets of metal and, like, fans and shit. It's, it's incredible how they make these noises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, there was a lot of ingenuity going on behind the scenes, I'm sure. And again, because it's a radio show, you're, it's, it's forced to leave things to your imagination, um, which when you're discussing, like, life forms from another planet that you can't fully conceive of, that's exactly what you want. So a lot of times the sound effects do 90% of the work for making this, like, atmospheric and scary. Another thing that I think is a cool little detail is the black smoke I don't know if that's really a little detail, but I just think it's neat that these conquerors just release this, like, miasma that just, like, sweeps across the country and presumably the world and just obliterates everything. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's a, I guess to put it in the frame of the time, it's a blitzkrieg before they had blitzkrieged Poland. Yeah, it's just... Like, a year later, World War II kicks off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I had to wonder, like, how the broadcast might have been different had they had a knowledge of, like, the atom bomb, you know? That was something that I was really thinking about while I was watching, or listening to this. Oh, if, if this if this had happened 20 years later, they, they definitely would have tried to nuke the aliens. Well, especially because it's established that just crashing a plane into one will kill it, like, that does make them seem a lot less intimidating. Um, yeah, like they they just they just nuke the Jersey Turnpike and like mm-hmm. it's, it's it's all said and done like we're all right. Yeah. Oh, another moment that could have been a little hokey, but I actually found pretty creepy was when Professor uh, Cuckold fucking Pearson. Oh yeah, Professor Dingbat. He fucking <laughs> reveals that the aliens are eating people, and random fascist number one says that, like, people are being kept in pens and made nice and fat and they're fucking selectively, they're selectively breeding people for the tastiest livestock, basically. Hell yeah, dude, Um, human cattle. Aliens eating people is kind of a cliche, but I kind of, I don't know, it is inherently kind of creepy. Well, Brian, that's... I I, I kind of feel that's not fair. It, It, like, really... The War of the Worlds is very formulaic in its uh, alien invasion story because it's the first alien invasion story. Like, all, all this shit we see as tropes now weren't tropes in 1938. I know. I'm not holding it against it. I, what I was going to say is it has become kind of cliche, but I think it's very creepy in the story, especially because if you look at this as a... If you look at this as a kind of in like colonialist horror story you know it's humans being exploited by their conquerors like 
say the English exploited the people they conquered, but in like the most obvious and direct way, where like instead of being pumped for like, you know, physical like monetary resources or like trade resources or land, we're literally just being cultivated for our flesh, like kind of the ultimate exploitation. Yeah, they're here for the meat. Yeah, we have the meats. <laughs> them, them aliens was thinking Arby's though. <laughs> they sure were. We are not sponsored by Arby's. If you couldn't tell, not yet. Um, I also wanted to add something that occurred to me is that there is a little bit of a hint of that commentary about the the fascist guy. Like you know, I said some of these themes about like critiquing colonialism that aren't as present in the broadcast as are in the the book i do think you see a little bit of a critique of like nationalism in the fascist guy because he specifically goes out of his way to to talk about how america is the greatest country on earth and if they took down america what can't they take down basically yeah so they give you this like almost zealot this like um this extremely radical, like, frothing-at-the-mouth fascist. And they also explicitly show you that he's, like, has, like, this deep sense of national pride. So given that we were on the verge of World War II and had just come out of World War One, I, I think it's pretty reasonable to say that they wanted to emphasize that critique of, uh, of nationalism. But that's the only other... That's, like, the only purpose I really see from that guy. Yeah, it's just, uh... For as good as it actually is as a radio drama, like it really is that that third, that that third part that just uh, brings it right back down into like old timey radio. Yeah, which is a blessing and a curse. I happen to enjoy old timey radio. I don't know if if Brian particularly does. You ever listen to any like Fibber McGee and Molly or uh, Suspense? I'll be honest with you. I haven't had the opportunity to listen to much old timey radio. Um, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about, but I have listened to a lot of radio plays in my life, so, um, this is extremely, uh, top-tier nerdy for me, but, uh, Doctor Who does a lot of audio plays with the old actors who used to play the Doctor, and I listened to a ton of those as a kid on my little fucking CD player that was ten years out of date. Nice. But yeah, I mean, I think this this combines a lot of both of our loves into one kind of product. It's definitely not perfect, but I think for being as old as it is, it holds up remarkably well. That, yeah. that first third, I think especially, is very unnerving, very chilling. So, I don't know. I mean, that's our second entry in our spooky Halloween stuff. It's not the most outright horrific thing in the world, but it's more of a kind of existential horror. Um, yeah, it... It really makes you think, and at the end of the day, listeners, isn't isn't the mind the biggest uh, villain of all, or something? I I had a better better phrase for that, but I don't know. It really makes you think, bottom text. (laughs) This really says a lot about our society. (laughs) Um... Uh, yeah, it's, hate if you want, he do be spitting facts, though. It's um, <laughs> it's existential horror in the 
in not in the sense of like some cosmic horror where it's like it's existential horror because I literally have to rethink everything I knew about my way of life. It's well, I guess it kind of is that, but it's it's like it's asking you, a person who lives in a highly successful imperialist country, to imagine what if you were on the receiving end of invasion and conquest and exploitation. And so, A, the presentation of it is very effective, and B, it's the kind, there's this kind of subconscious way that it, it gets under your skin, I think. Yeah, it, it's, it's the kind of horror that, that kind of sticks with you. A little yeah. bit, if I, if, I, if I can be, like, cheesy about it. It's yeah. the kind of horror that leaves a lasting impression. Oh, yeah. I, I 110% agree with you. Like, if we can be snobs slash pussies for a minute, um, <laughs> I think we both agree that, like, jump scare horror isn't really our thing. Um, and we tend to gravitate towards stuff like this. Um, a, because we're pussies. Um, we don't like jump scares. Uh, yeah, no, people, fuck that. Nobody does. Yeah, no, a lot of people do. I don't know why, but a lot of people do. Uh, adrenaline rush or something. Um, I guess, yeah. But uh, I like stuff like this because it does leave a lasting impression. It's not like, ah, in your face, and then you forget about it the next day. It is... It frightens you on an existential level it makes you question like a fundamental aspect of your life it makes you recontextualize something that never used to frighten you and that's the kind of shit that does stick with you that kind of slow burn psychological uh psychologically oriented horror i think is way more effective and i much prefer i think we both much prefer that style oh 100 percent. you know it, it's they say like you know, you know what comes is fine. It's it's the wait it's the waiting that kills me or whatever. It's yes. like it's it's that suspense. It's that like you know, not you know reacting to what's happening. It's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yep. Totally agree. Do you have anything else you want to get out there, or you want to start wrapping it up for us, bud? Uh, no, I'll just wrap it up for you. A nice, merciful, short episode for everyone. Yeah. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Through the Light Show. Let's see, Brian, how we do this. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, really whatever podcasting app you want to use. I know there's a bunch of third-party ones out there. Let's see. Am I missing anything? Uh, leave a like, leave a review, share it around. You can find a code at Dak Wrestleford on Twitter. I think we're good though, so um Yeah, in that case, um my name is Dakota. My name's none of your business. Nice, and this has been the Through the Light Show.